what is the nature of the great controversy as portrayed in the Bible? What are the issues? Is it a power struggle or an ideological or theological struggle? Are the sides clear? How does one fight in the war? Who is the enemy? What makes for victory? How has or will God win in the conflict? That's comprehensive enough, isn't it? (laughs) I don't care what order we do these in, except that I'd like to save number five maybe for the end and deal with the first four. So I don't care which one you want to jump into. Wow, I've had enough problems already. (laughs) (laughs) I like her observation. Okay. I raised more problems than you wanted to hear. Okay. I have a question. I don't don't know if you or someone else has the answer. But with Anderson, we have this well-defined doctrine we call the Great Controversy Doctrine. But most Christians believe there's a devil, that there will come an end, that, you know, all those sorts of things. So in what way do you differ? I wish I'd had you critique this before I got it out. I would have put that as question number five and moved question number five down. And that's a good question. Anybody want to address that? Part of the answer um, lies in not just about this planet, good and evil, you know, being here, but it involves all the other inhabited worlds out there. So, so our picture is maybe more expansive? Anybody else want to deal with that? Jim? I would say our picture is maybe more timely focused in that most of the pictures that emerge to me from the Old Testament don't have a, a real clear place in it for the Catholic Church. Whereas our great controversy has this has this focus and this entity that that, that is easy to sling arrows at, and uh, uh, therefore it doesn't have quite this. Co- it does have the cosmic view, but it, it's it's a uh, the icon of that cosmic view is contained in the in that entity. Okay, so let, okay, could we say that a little nicer, maybe? <laughs> Could we say that our, our great controversy view is more eschatological in nature? It's more defined, more specified, more extensive, because I hope, I hope we've moved, some of us anyway, from, from taking a pot shots at, at one entity and, and transferred that to a more general... I think, I think when the great controversy was written, when, when this idea right. was developed, but that, that was a huge focus. Okay. Because it was timely at that time. Okay, and it was acceptable too at that time. Anybody else want to tackle that? Yes. I think that maybe another difference is that we have sort of a retrofitted template for the whole Old Testament history in which we sort of put this for the controversy context as well, which other churches may not do as extensively. They may read, as your first question suggests, they read the Old Testament as it reads and don't read into it all of this as much of this great controversy as we do. Okay. Yes. Where do other churches who don't have the spirit of prophecy get their idea of the great prophecy? You want to do a history of how this idea developed? Well, I think Genesis 3.15 gives us a pretty good start for the great controversy. Okay. The serpent. Some would say that that wasn't necessarily the Satan, but just simply a, an, a creature that was mythologized, but... It, it really does have to do with the lens at which you look at Scripture. Let's do just a brief charting out of the history of the Great Controversy view. And, and I want to tell you, some of the background I have for this comes from a paper I did when I was a graduate student at Lumberland University for research methods class from Paul Landa. I tackled the, the Adventist Great Controversy theme and said, where did it come from? And, and he and I disagreed, which is quite interesting. So he gave me a bibliography I was supposed to use, and I used it still to support my views, which threw him a real curve, and we ended up being friends despite it all. (laughs) But basically, the earliest precursor, and I'm talking now in Christianity, you have to start somewhere, and, and Christianity perhaps is the safest way, because if I went back too far, which we'll end up doing anyway because of my background, we would just take too long with this. But the earliest precursor is what has been called the random theory of the atonement. Anybody know what that theory is? This is the earliest view of atonement in Christianity in terms of formal Christianity. The ransom theory teaches that God and the devil were basically faced off in some kind of a conflict, 
and that Jesus died to buy us back. That's the ransom idea. That Satan got us hostage. He took us as captives, as slaves. And God bought him back through the death of his son. And Satan thought he had you know, his victim in the tomb. But Jesus rose again, and so God tricked the devil, you see, out of his prey. That was a popular view in early Christianity, second, third, fourth centuries. And from that time on, you have kind of folklore, a belief in demons, and they lived out in the desert and in waste places, and and they attacked and harassed Christians, and and they were kind of enemies of of human beings, but there was no well-formulated doctrine or delineation of how that worked. With the rise of Anselmian views of atonement, Anselm was attempt to be an improvement on this because if you break down the, the ransom theory, you know, and I love to do this in a, in a doctrinal studies class, I love to ask my students to tell me how the ransom theory works. Who did God pay? That's a sticky question in the ransom theory. If he paid the devil, then he owed the devil something? What do you do with that? And, and basically, when you try to map out the ransom theory in any kind of logical, coherent scheme, it falls flat. It just doesn't work. And so it's very easy to show that the ransom theory just is not viable. Well, Anselm's satisfaction theory was an attempt to deal with this problem. And he believed, he posed, that Jesus died to establish the honor of God. His justice, to satisfy his justice, which is why it became called the satisfaction theory, and to make payment to God, not to the devil. So the figure transferred from the devil in the ransom theory to God himself. What happened with that shift is, well, it alleviated the problem in the ransom theory. What happened in that shift is that the devil got forsaken, and he ceased to be a primary entity. Well, then you have the Reformation, and you have Luther and Calvin as the main. You have others, Swingley and, and others, but these are the two main heralds of the Reformation. Luther basically believed in the devil. He threw his inkwell at him, or his shadow, on the wall. You may remember that famous story. He believed that there was a devil. He believed that he was opposed to God's plan, that he was opposed to human beings. But he also believed that God had basically vanquished the devil, and therefore he was basically impotent. He was more of a tempter figure, and it played a certain sub-level adversarial role. Calvin threw basically the devil into God's right arm of vengeance. And in Calvinist theology, let me give you a source, Donald Blesch, I think it is, The Essentials of Evangelicalism. It's a two-volume work. I think the library has a copy. His belief in there is, and this is one of the essentials, okay, that the devil is God's right arm for punishment. He's, he does God's dirty work. Calvin's view, God is totally sovereign. And Calvin, of course, was attempting to alleviate other problems, that, the idea that the salvation was in the hands of the church and you weren't saved by grace. So God had to be sovereign in Calvin's view. But there was a dissertation written about this, pointing out that basically any kind of a conflict between God and Satan was forsaken with the Reformation. Now, I think that's a little stronger, perhaps, than, than needs to be. I think Luther still held to something of it. But Calvin certainly seems to have really formatted it to almost negate it. And she points out in this dissertation that, and this, by the way, was done by a person in, in lit- English literature, not a theologian, I might add. She points out that it was people like Milton, the poets, who kept alive the theme of a conflict. So there's this kind of enormous dead spot where you don't have much of a conflict, and then you have it beginning again, really, with the precursors of the Advent movement and then more fully with the Adventists. And so consequently, you know, you read a book like Hal Lindsey's uh, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. I don't know if you remember that book. It was a very popular book back in the late 60s, early 70s. And you would read a book like that and think everybody believed it like we do. But actually, they probably got it from us, if the truth were known, along with the second coming and some other things. So that kind of gives you a background of where we are and different people are in different places, but 
we are the only ones who have a well thought out, coherent understanding of a great controversy. Sandy. Well, I'm not familiar with the discrete meanings of certain theological terms, so I don't know what's implied when Calvin uses sovereign there for God. God is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely in control, and no one can, in a, in a totally sovereign position where God is really a totalitarian governor, no one can question his inscrutable ways. Well, even if that were so, why does that make the devil his right-hand man? Well, because you can't rebel against a God like that. So there's no room for a war in heaven, a rebellion type of thing, theology. You then have to deal with who the devil is. You have to put him somewhere in the picture because he's in the Bible. So you put him then as, as he's the one who does what God needs to do in terms of punishment. He's the, the guy with the pitchfork in hell. And that's medieval. That's medieval thinking. That God hands the sinners over to the devil, really, to torture in hell. The devil does the torturing, not God. But God is sovereign, and people will not be able to live in rebellion indefinitely. But they don't die instantly in their rebellion. True, but if you're going to talk about a conflict, if God is totally sovereign, anybody who, who dares to rebel against him, immediately he's... He either has to ameliorate to God's system and, and do something in this area, or you're, he's out. There is no power of choice. There's no power, real power of choice. And, and, of course, freedom of the will is a major discussion between Calvinists and those who, who hold to it. What did these theologians do with Job? Well, you know, the common belief in Job is that the Satan is a member of the divine council and that God, because he brings Job up, is actually the one suspicious about Job. That's common in scholarly lit circles. And that's what my dissertation is trying to wedge open and say, and there's an alternative view, and you might want to look at it. That's as far as I've been able to get. A new study about Jasmine and these areas, but where did the figure of Satan appear? I have had to change my views over the years. I don't believe that there was a Satan figure much before the exile. You're talking 6th century. Now that sounds radical, but Alden Thompson preceded me, so if you want a name to latch onto where you're comfortable, <laughs> I'll mention him so I, I'm not standing out here by myself. When he did his doctorate in Scotland, he encountered this. He did his work in intertestamental literature and, and discovered that there is a development of this idea. But there are precursors of a Satan and that we could spend some time uh, talking about those precursors of a Satan figure. But Satan, as we understand him, is really very New Testament. Also intertestamental, the apocryphal literature, some of the other, first Enoch, some of those works do deal with him more as the New Testament does. But, but you really don't find him, I mean, you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, where's Satan? The only Satan in the, in the stories of Genesis through Deuteronomy is the story of Balaam. Remember Balaam? Balaam goes out to try to curse God's people. And who meets him? A Satan. Believe it or not, <laughs> the angel is a Satan. And it's in the text. Can't get rid of it. <laughs> it's right there. So, so to say, well, God sent Satan to stop Balaam? No. That word Satan simply means adversary. A, an adversary, an adversarial angel who was going to oppose Balaam was meeting him in the path. It wasn't the Satan that we understand of the New Testament. And this is a, in a developmental process. Well, it was not about the time the idea of a monotheist in God. Well, that, that raises an interesting question because one of the things that has been claimed that I am trying to dispel in my dissertation is the idea that the reason there's no Satan in the Old Testament is because of monotheism. And I say the opposite that the rise of monotheism allowed room for a Satan figure. Because otherwise you had gods of other nations to, to form the function of that guy. Yeah, and the reason for that is, as I look at Babylonian materials, where they have polytheism, polytheism is rampant, you have many pantheons, and when I read the material, they have God as sovereign. <laughs> he is the God of all the demons, good and bad, and all the other gods, good and bad, and there's good gods, there's bad gods, there's good demons, there's bad demons, and the gods are the source of all of that, and they're always in control of that, to the point where evil comes from gods, basically. There's no differentiation, there's no separation between good and evil. And that's another thing that makes 
the creation story of Genesis, if you want a precursor. I don't know if you, do you want to go into the ancient stuff and see where these precursors are because I do believe we have enough support for a great controversy in the Bible. I wouldn't raise these questions just to be agnostic here. But I do believe they're there. One of the things that's interesting about the priestly creation is the emphasis is on separation. Light from darkness. The chaos areas of the sea from the land. And vegetation appearing. God taking chaos and creating order. Presupposes there's, a, there's some kind of conflict going on. And I could go through that and look at some of the terms that are very significant if you want to go that route. We have a hand here. Is there a Satan in Judaism? Yes, after the exile. It begins to develop, and he finally, during the intertestamental period, I think becomes a full-fledged figure, much like the New Testament. So who was the scapegoat? That's a good question to the Israelites. Well, we, we can't be sure what they thought, but scholars now are pretty convinced, and this is a general consensus, surprisingly, in our favor of our traditional interpretation. The term Azazel, you remember there's two goats, and there's one for Yahweh and there's one for Azazel. The term Azazel comes from probably, I'm going to have to use technical terminology here, I don't know how to get around it, a metathesized form of a verb that comes from Akkadian. Metathesized form means letters have been switched. Azazu and El. El is, the, is God, is a God figure. Azazu means to be angry. So this is an angry God versus Yahweh's goat. And the, the difference in treatment is it's very profound. If you take the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 and parallel it with the Akitu festival of Babylon, which is its counterpart, the theology is profound. Very significant stuff. So you, Azazel, they now think, the general consensus is that Azazel is a demonic figure, something like Pazazu, which was a demon in Babylonian mythology. So the goat for Azazel would represent a demonic figure, which is quite interesting. Yes. Could you finish the outline for Adventism? Uh, yeah, at the end of the day. Well, to me, that's the answer. So I'd like to come back to it rather than give you the answer and then you want to go home. You may not agree with your answer. (laughs) All right. That's fair. In my paper that I did for Paul Landa, I concluded that Ellen White probably did not formulate something dramatically new in her view of the Great Controversy. In terms of, if you look at Milton, if you look at some of the other people who were vogue in the, from the 1600s to the 1800s, she built on them, like she did with health and a lot of other things. Let's face it, Ellen White was not in a vacuum, and, and we learn something about inspiration, I think, when we watch her life. But she went beyond in one significant step. I don't think her view of Catholicism in the time of trouble was that much different than what was held currently in her time. What was different was theology. She brought theology to something that had been a power struggle between God and Satan. She moved it from power struggle to an ideological struggle in the mind. And she brought out the issues in the war that had never been developed before. Now, this is from based on my research, trying to look at all the precursors of Ellen White in her time. This is, to me, what she established. Because if you don't, how can you fight appropriately in a war if you don't know what the issues are? If you think it's a power struggle and it's really not, you're going to be really confused. And so that's what I found to be the most significant contribution to Ellen White, is that she took what had been a skeleton, a kind of story or a play, and she brought to it something very profound, theology. So now you can disagree. There is a major theme um and I, Doug Morgan is the one most recently to uh, suggest, and I read it in an earlier article, that she was basically only confirming what it was either Jan Andrews or A.G. Daniels was writing, and that there was nothing original in any of her work on the Great Controversy. And that basically she was merely confirming what other major. In terms of the Great Controversy, I think that's probably pretty fair if you take that just that one volume. But if you take the entire Conflict of the Ages series, she enlarged it to encompass all 66 books of the Bible, the whole history, the whole history of humankind. 
and to bring coherence. She brought a coherent thread that I don't think others were quite developing. Another interesting part of that, and I don't want to go off on this direction, but um, our office was involved in um, getting the White Estate to do a um, modern version of the book education mm-hmm. to get rid of the, you know, to make it uh, more inclusive in its language and use modern versions of the Bible, not to really change the text. And uh, when Kenneth Wood was in the middle of that project, he came down to my office and said he was so excited because he realized that the best statement anywhere on the Great Controversy thing was in the book Education. A few weeks later, I was at a meeting with um, George Knight, and we were talking about this project, and he said, you know, the Brethren rejected the book Education because it didn't have enough Great Controversy thing in it. And it sort of confirmed what Wood had said to me uh, earlier in his going through and doing the paraphrase, that we often focus on the Conflict of the Ages series, but there's several people who feel the best extrapolation of that is in the book And yes, it's all through her writings, actually, particularly her later writings. And you can't, if you deal with atonement, you cannot leave the Great Controversy. And, And that's one of the things, I doubt if A.G. Daniels and Jan Andrews really hit on atonement in as clear a view as she did. Now, I realize that there, there's a general movement here, and, and to me that, that does not mean Ellen White is not unique at all. She maybe just simply finished it off so that we can understand it more clearly. I get bored reading Jan Andrews and A.G. Daniels' writings. They tended, the, the pioneers tended to be rather pedantic and extremely detailed and boring to read. And, and sometimes hard to understand. Whereas I think Ellen White did tend to make it easier, and I still think that she brought to it some unique aspects theologically in terms of why Jesus had to die, in terms of how it works out in the Great Controversy, moving us dramatically from a power struggle to something that deals with issues, theological issues. And I think she, that was her chief focus before the end of her life. So where do you put her in the models? Um, great controversy model. But I mean, in the traditions that you've outlined. I see us as beyond the Radical Reformation and closest to it, which is in harmony with the early Adventist view of the progression of truth, that, that this was a move out of the darkness into the light. And we had some work to do, and we weren't to stand still at any point. Pity us if we ever do. Do you want to go back, or do you want to keep going forward? Okay, I hear everybody wanting to go forward. I, I don't mean, do you want to go backwards in theology? I mean, do you want to go back and deal with the ancient stuff, or do you want to keep moving in the modern era? Nancy? I'm still struck with this idea that, that um, it's possible to see the Old Testament and not see the same that we all see when we look mm-hmm. back. And I'm wondering, then, what the motivation is for this snake you know, if he's not, if he's working on his own, and he's, what's he, what's he well, you can have two different views. The the more Calvinist view would be that the snake was God's tempter, and he was testing Adam and Eve to see whether they were really good children or not. What about the serpent on the cross and the woman? The pole, the the story of that. Um, well, that becomes a Christ figure, so yeah. you see, maybe he's not the devil, so to speak. What's the other interpretation? It's not God's. Oh, there's a really radical interpretation out there that um, that Eve has simply got trumped for learning wise and wonderful things, and, and it's a very masculine portrayal. <laughs> That's a feminist, a feminist view, but there's our view, and I would say our view is is would be considered antiquated, probably. Yes. Don't we have to look at what was the purpose of some of the books in the Old Testament? Uh, it seems to me the purpose wasn't necessarily to talk about Satan, talk about God, it was more or less through their history, and, and we're trying to impose on whatever their purpose was, what we want to hear about the devil. And so, I, I don't know, I don't find a problem with it, it not being there, simply it seems to me it had a different reason for being written. Well, that relates to question number four. Looking at it from a little different angle uh, than Richard's just brought up, if God is behind the things we've been talking about, if the great controversy is real, 
Why did he wait so long to unveil it? Why isn't there more about it? Well, that's assuming that we're right in our view. Well, if we're not, then we don't need to be spending any time here today. But if we are, if we really believe this is one of our doctrines, then why is it so late on the scene and development? I, I still believe that Job lays it out very clearly. It's one of the oldest books there is. And, it, you know, we have, we have trouble with it because it's, it's, it's laborious reading. But uh, uh, still, the story is told there in what I would call almost comic book graphics, just in terms of, hey, God, your plan isn't working. It can't work because people won't serve you out of love. They'll either serve you because you give them good things or because you threaten them with punishment. And that's that's the whole issue. Uh, that's the whole accusation right there. And, and that, that seems to me to be very early. Why wasn't it more emphasized? Why isn't there more about it? So it would be really clear and unequivocal so we don't have to just support our, our views on one book. For side two, please turn the tape directly over without rewinding. Because people won't serve you out of love. They'll either serve mm -hmm. you because you give them good things or because you threaten them with punishment. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the whole issue. Uh, that's the whole accusation right there. And that, that seems to me to be very early. Why wasn't it more emphasized? Why isn't there more about it? So it would be really clear and unequivocal, so we don't have to just support our, our views on one book. Uh, the idea of progressive revelation, in, in the way I've always thought of it, was I think of God as being a teacher, teaching us what we can take. And, then, and when, if you're a teacher, you know that you have to give them A before you can give them B. And if they can't get B, you can't give them C. And so you keep trying to bring them along, and when they're, you're, you're done, they might turn and say to you, why didn't you tell me this the first day? <laughs> you can't tell Same them the first day because they have to know all that other stuff first. And if they refuse to get it, then you're not going to move on very fast. Um, and so to, to me, the God uh, apparently is giving us what we can take, when we can take it, the speed that we're willing to take it, and this is how it worked. You remind me of a graphic illustration of that when I was graduation analyst. I was talking to Lloyd Best in the math department, and I was wrestling with our students who just don't get the ACT scores they need for math, and they have to take the 001, 002, and 003, as it used to be back then. And he pointed out to me, he said, you know that math is a very age-friendly kind of learning. You have to be at a certain age and be taught it clearly in a certain way in order to grasp each concept. And if you go, if you jump hoops and you go over, you miss something, a teacher failed you and didn't give you what you needed, then you can never go back and quite pick it up again and you can never quite reach the level of understanding and mathematics that you would have had. And the way he drew it out to me, I was, I was just dumbfounded. I didn't know that it had anything to do with the age level you were at the time you were taught the concept. So it was it was really a graphic illustration of that. Yeah. Well, so much of the great controversy theory includes the death of Christ, mm -hmm. the idea of incarnation and death, and trying to find a way to explain it and what it was mm -hmm. for and why. In the Old Testament, you don't have that yet. And to a large extent, you don't really have the anticipation of it. I mean, it, it seems not the idea that there would be an incarnated Son of God who would die for the sins of the nation was sort of implanted in the ritual, but but not clear. So it's always something like our trying to describe heaven. We haven't been there, haven't seen it, and when we get there, are we going to say what we described down here in all those Harry Anderson paintings were the truth? <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting that um, our relationship with God is often paralleled with husband and wife, and anthropologists talk about how the relationship between husband and wife has been changing throughout the years as our needs <laughs> change and culture, and I suppose it should be the same between our relationship with God and man and husband and wife, you know, it's more than just survival now. Okay. So you have the problem of development, that we develop in our thinking, in our understanding, and thus truth develops as we develop. Well, it seems to me the Eden story and the Job story laid it out between them fairly clearly what was going on, and everything else has just been relegated to committees ever since then. It's been lost. <laughs> Studied it, analyzed it. They put it on the shelf, huh? Yeah. That's the possibility, actually. 
if God is going to wait until we understand, the second coming is a long way off. <laughs> what do you do with that? Yeah. It seems like the, the great controversy motif is, is where it's not explicit, it just seems like it's implicit throughout the whole thing. It's like it's as, it's as obvious and as implicit as the air we, we breathe. So it's assumed. Right. Soon. I would like to make a point. Our time is fast going, and then maybe I'll go back to questions. If you're going to communicate something to people, what kind of constructs are you going to use? Are you going to use 20th century constructs where we're used to high-tech war and issues and dialogues and talks, and, and we have democracy and we have a different kind of governance than has been understood in the last or, or the previous millennium? Or are you going to talk in constructs that are familiar to the people at that time? That is our problem with the Old Testament. Is that we're talking a different construct. And this is what modernists have failed to understand. Is that the great controversy is very much alive and well in the Old Testament. Though it is minimized to some degree because you have a God in the Old Testament who isn't threatened by anything personally. And he's, he's, he's equal to it, so let's put it that way. He's big enough to handle it. And so what you have in the Old Testament are remnants of it. You have it in Genesis 1, you have it in Genesis 3, you have it in Ezekiel 28, you have it in Isaiah 14, you have it in Job 1 and 2, in Zechariah 3, Daniel. You have it all, all over, but it's in different constructs. So you have to ask what those constructs meant to the people in that time. Actually, you have it in Job 38, 41. <laughs> Left out the most important part of my dissertation. You have it all the way through, very clearly, if you understand the language, the terminology, the mythology, the, the constructs that lie behind it. I'll just say that. If you want me to demonstrate it, you'll have to give me the time. But otherwise, hands. Yes? It seems like uh, Milton understood the idea of the great controversy rather clearly. Mm -hmm. He's one of those who preserved it. to it constantly in his, <laughs> his writings, but, and, and he must have gotten that from somewhere. Yes, he had a predecessor, I think, an Italian, it was an Italian poet, actually, that he built on. And the Italian poet got it from some obscure theologians. <laughs> I mean, really, this is a very obscure teaching, if you look at the medieval times. And it's interesting, I should mention this, the, the Cathara movement, sometimes known as the Alvajois, where actually the, the Inquisition began, I don't know if you're aware of this, historically the Inquisition began against this movement. They began against them because they claimed they worshipped Satan. Why did they claim that? Because they had held to dualism. They believed in a God and, and, and a separate being from God who was a tempter in an adversarial position. And... Uh, they, they got destroyed because of it. Sometimes we pronounce it the Albigenses. Yes? For me, Paul describes the great controversy the best of Romans 7. And no matter what's happening out there on the cosmic level or out there outside myself, I just see that great controversy waged within myself on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to look any further than that to see that the tone and the issues and the paradoxes and all the struggles that take place. And, and when he said, I, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. It helps us see it in the broader context, but I'm, I'm most acutely aware and I deal with it. And I, I kind of forget what's, sometimes what's out there, the different theories. Well, it seems to me a, a basic empirical way of dealing with this is to say, is there good and is there evil? If, if you do away with the great controversy, then you have to explain good and evil. And if God is the author of both, as some maintain, especially those who hold to a sovereignty-type position. If God is the author of both good and evil, then we're in a real fix. How do you deal with that on a psychological level? How do, you, how do you tell a person who's gone through the Holocaust to deal with that? When it becomes a real experiential kind of problem, then, then we tend to want something that will be big enough to explain what we're going through. I saw some hands. Yeah. The idea of God waiting and not doing anything to destroy Satan. Uh, in in all in all the history, uh, like the Egyptian form of Satan is a 
forgot his name, but he's a brother of Osiris, and he killed Osiris, the father god. And then the wife resurrected him and made him. Uh, mm-hmm. You have you have some of the rem- some of the early precursors there in, in Egyptian. But then in, in Iraq there is a whole section that worships Satan, with the understanding that Satan is the son of God, and one day although he rebelled and he is now against God, one day he is going to reform and God will accept him and therefore they are worshiping him now. But the idea. <laughs> In advance of, of uh, Satan being of the family of God, not a created being, uh, appeared in at least three different ancient religions. You know, and I was mm-hmm. wondering if uh, the Bible doesn't rule that out. No, I, mean, I think I think in Ezekiel twenty-eight it's spelled out. Actually, let me tell you how I deal with the Isaiah fourteen and Ezekiel twenty-eight. Just briefly, I I know you probably don't want to hear this, but I'm going to do it anyway. These are two figures, and it strikes me as strange that even though you have real flesh and blood kings like Sennacherib and Assyrian king in Isaiah and other kings in Ezekiel these two kings are not mentioned by name why are they not named if these are real live stories about people uh, why are they not named and the other peculiarity of Isaiah 14 is that you're talking about the king of Babylon and you're dealing with an Assyrian period Babylon's just a vassal of Assyria why would you deal then with the king of Babylon? Why is he such a threat? Why is he such a historical figure? And I'm not going to take all the time to explain all those questions, but I would like to say that I see these as what I would call, we would call mythic characters. Now, don't be afraid of that term mythic as I use it. I use it simply as a prototype type figure. These are people who have developed certain kinds of ideologies, shall we say, or, or represent certain kinds of ideologies that are closest to what Satan has been attempting to initiate on the planet. And they are significant because I think who they really are, I think the king of Babylon is Marduk and the king of Tyre is Baal. Because both of those bear the epithet of king of Babylon king of Tyre, respectively. And so you're dealing with false worship, false gods who originally were created probably by the mastermind of evil. And so they are taken then into this story, which is unique. By the way, Ezekiel 28 has not been found anywhere else in ancient Near Eastern literature, and neither has Isaiah 14. They're unique to the Bible. They're these unique fallen beings who originally were in heaven. And that's quite clear in the passage. That's why you can't say they're just ordinary human beings ruling on the planet. So I, I still maintain that it's there in those two passages for that reason. But based on what I see in life, uh, I sense that there is a conflict between good and evil, regardless of who the players are. There is some kind of conflict based on what I sense around me. And just thinking about who the players may be, you know, if God's emphasis primarily is to inform us about who he is, I, I don't sense that Satan's emphasis primarily would be to make the great controversy crystal clear to us and emphasize himself. So if God's going to concentrate on portraying himself and Satan's going to keep the thing hazy, then maybe it's not so surprising to me that there's not a whole lot of emphasis on the great controversy. I see that pattern all the way through. That if you're a criminal, have a criminal mentality and you're out trying to hurt someone you have a vendetta against someone and you're out trying to expose them or hurt them and do some damage to them the last thing you want is exposure the last thing you want is to be caught in the dead of night doing things around their house you would prefer to make it hazy as hazy as possible and I think that we do have that on the other side why doesn't God stand up and say I've had it with you I want you exposed and to me, that question is a theological question, and one that's answer can only be if you don't worship a God who runs things like a dictator, if you worship a God who gives everybody fair chance and fair play, then you have a God in Job who has to take what the Satan says seriously. And the Satan, anybody then, anybody in God's creation has the right to go to him and disagree with him. And not only does the Satan in the book of Job, but Job himself does, as it turns out. And Job turns out to be right. 
which is the great conundrum of the book of Job. So you have this playoff, and you can only have that as you shift from this view to a God who is um, operates on a more consensual type government. And that's a, a radically different kind of great controversy then, a radically different kind of conflict that takes a different shape and looks uh, very different. I'm sorry, he was first and then he... Uh, 1.2 billion people in the world who have claimed that God is uh, the source of all evil and the source of all good, and that is Islam. Uh, because they say God can uh, choose uh, to be evil uh, as he desires because he's the source of evil. Uh, but he decides to, to be merciful. And so they accept that. And I look at that and I find myself uh, so enthused about the concept of Christianity, about the concept of God sending his son to this world. And uh, the more we delve into the other aspects of does uh, Satan really exist, or what is his role, and all these things, really diminishes this great concept of uh, God sending his son into this world. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm afraid that uh, in our discussions many times we overlook that the greater the justice of God, I find the greater, and I appreciate his mercy, because the two are go hand in hand. And uh, the, the Islam doesn't believe much in love. In fact, we were told by one of our, you don't talk, use the word uh, love, but use the word merciful or benevolent. You know, God is benevolent, but he certainly is not a God of love. Uh, and I find that uh, the, the Christian concept is so superior. Okay, and you're next. You know, the, the derivation that you've outlined here with Luther being uh, a major voice in the Reformation and Calvin and his uh, sovereignty being emphasized so, so much. Um, now, obviously, the truth must be somewhere between these two constraints because there are some really outstanding people who have contributed to the development of the Christianity that we hold so dear today, like Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones and G. Campbell Morgan, all of whom were strong Calvinists in their beliefs. So could you say a few words about the contribution that this philosophy has given us as Christians today and not just that it's all bad? <laughs> well, I would say this, that there's a real strength in believing that God is in control, that he's not taken by surprise, that he has a plan, and that ultimately his plan will succeed. There's real strength in that, that he is the ultimate sovereign in that sense. And I think that if you had to jump from here you could not jump from here to our view of the great controversy. You have to go through. This took place in a certain time and place where feudalism uh, was prominent. And basically, it's, it's recognized, for example, that Anselm basically took the feudal ideas of his day and melded them into the satisfaction theory. Likewise, in the Reformation, they broke away from a really dogmatic approach of the church being the mark of salvation to a God who, whose salvation was in his hands. It was a real relief to many, many people. Where the problem is that if we, if we think of truth as an, an absolute thing, where you either have it or you don't, and other people in ancient times either have it or they don't, then you're caught in the sense of, well, then they're not saved and I am and, and all of that. That is not God's continuum in my understanding. The problem is that when you have more light, if our tendency is to say, well, the old was better, then we're in trouble. That's where the trouble is. If we don't keep moving, and at any point we stop and, and resist going forward, there's a point at which God allows for that with age and, and some other factors where people simply have gone as far as they can go. But through eternity, it's my understanding, we will continue to advance in knowledge. It's the same thing in the scientific world. How many people here believe the pre-Copernicus <laughs> type of thinking with the world being flat and the center of the universe and, and all of that? We know that those are lies. Do we think of people who before that time is totally stupid and ignorant? And, and Well, maybe we do and maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> maybe our problem is that we, we tend to think that 
Truth is static. Truth is, is set in cement. It never is. And the key to learning truth is not to ever say, I have arrived. If we ever stop and say where we've arrived, then we're going to go backwards. It's inevitable because it seems to be the way the mind works. So if we're going to keep moving, to me, I have to then be an Adventist with all of the beliefs that we hold, including the Great Controversy, because that's my only safety. And hopefully I don't stop there. Hopefully I keep working forward because if I don't, I'm likely to go backwards. Yeah. I found this interesting comparison between Islam and Christianity. I, I heard a program this week in which Christianity was being sort of accused of having interpreted the World Trade Center disaster as God's hand to uh, to bring us a number of, a number of prominent Christians didn't go public with that. That fits more with that God is in charge, God does the good, God does the bad, and you know God is slapping us around to wake us up mm-hmm. mentality. Which if God is the author, if God is the author of good and evil, both, then there's no evil. We just imagine that we're suffering down here. It's just a mind game, and and I have, find that position totally intolerable. Because it denies the reality. And I think that's where I find Job such a comfort. That was where Job planted his feet and refused to budge. He said, I don't care what your theories are. I don't care what your traditions are. The reality is different. <laughs> Look around you. What happens to wicked people? They prosper. They live to be old. And, and he planted his feet there and wouldn't budge. I find Job better than I am. I tend to be a mouse sometimes compared to him. He... If, if he were alive today, people would have told him he was paranoid. They would have told him he was a little crazy. And they would have told him some other things. But uh, Job stood up to all that. And I think he would today. I saw a hand over here. Yes? I work in a Presbyterian church, and I hear the Sovereign <laughs> God every Sunday morning. And I say, yes, I believe that. But there's another step beyond. But they don't believe that God's the author of evil. No. So no. that's why I can't quite put the picture together with what you're saying. So what does he do with evil? And I think there's probably within the, the Calvinistic, in today's Calvinism, there's a, probably a wide spectrum of belief. But, uh, but originally, God doesn't like evil, but he corrals it to do. So you only do evil Satan against the people I don't like or, or whatever. I'm, I'm making that very... Caricature, a very big caricature, but I I see it as really in a picture where if Dick were to run this institution like a dictator, and of all committees, we simply get top-down management. Anybody who rebels against that then would be what fired, an adversary fired. And if you had no outside recourse, such as the court of law, to deal with a problem then like that, you see where it could lead. There would be no, there would be, be a house without any doors out. <laughs> you know, doors in, but no doors out. And I think that's the kind of thing, if you push it logically to its conclusion. But the hallmark of, of all religion is that it doesn't have to be logical, and it doesn't have to be consistent, and it doesn't even have to make sense. And I, I think that that is where, where I come from, a belief that religion has to make sense, and it has to be logical, and it has to be consistent. I have to live with it in my head, and, and I can't if it isn't. If it isn't coherent, if it doesn't hang together, there's some flaw somewhere, there's something wrong. Then if, if you come at it from that perspective, that's why I probably take more the, the strong positions that I do. Is because I come from it from that perspective. I saw a hand over here. Yes. Cindy. That's the part that makes it difficult sometimes because we have to try to understand what God is doing without God's mind. It has to make sense to me, but then I have to somehow make room for the next step where it didn't make sense now, and the or to say aristocracy, the hierarchy doesn't want to dabble in things which don't seem to fit and make sense. They don't want to go down any new roads even if God is leading them, because they can't bring everybody together. You know, a dictatorship is much more efficient. Oh, yes. Yes. A dictatorship is much more efficient. It gets the job done. 
it walks on people in the process. But having to understand that it's always a difficulty we don't have. It's a long way there. And I think that that's right there you have encapsulated our whole situation. Why have we, or why are we still here? Why is the problem of good and evil unsolved? It, it reminds me of something I read in one of the commentators on Job. Probably we should close with this. A commentator said that the problem with the book of Job is that it does not solve the problem of evil. And I wrote a little note in response to him that I have tacked to my computer center. It says, no work, no written work, and no statement can ever solve the problem of evil. Because it cannot, number one, do away with evil, or number two, reassure us that evil does not exist. So, I think that the fact that we're still here, that we have so much to deal with, that evil is still alive and well, should be evidence enough that God doesn't do top-down management. He allows evil. And if you allow evil to run its course, that's a very different kind of governance. Well, this is great discussion. I keep discussing, that's important. I think in the days ahead, some things will become clearer than they've ever been before. So I think we can look forward. Let's pray. Dear God, we often wish that you would do something more about the problem of evil. And then sometimes we realize that if you did, where would you stop? And what about us when we ourselves are evil? And I pray that in our deliberations about you and the nature of your government and the great controversy, that we may come to really understand it, not just from the pages of your word, but as it rages in our own lives, as we see it around us, that we may not rest short of wrestling with the issues, because that is how we grow in our understanding and how we grow in character. I pray that this discussion we've started today will continue not just throughout this quarter, but throughout the rest of our time here. In Jesus' name, amen.